Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. I believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This season, we are going through the book of Daniel in today's episode, Daniel chapter 6, Daniel and the lion's den. Okay, this is probably the one of the most popular children's story of all time, so we're super familiar with it. And it starts off immediately talking about Darius. Um, and how he is setting up his new kingdom because we know in last chapter he came in in the night while Belshazzar was having his huge party and he conquered them swiftly and unexpectedly. So immediately he starts developing and setting up his government structure and there is a lot of controversy over who Darius the Mede is. We hear about him in Daniel, but there's not really many records found about him in historical books like we have for Cyrus the Great. And so what is really um, true is that no one knows for certain who he is, but God is always revealing truths each year through archaeology. And so one day it's going to be fun when they discover something and we are going to be on the front end of it going, oh, we've learned about him. We know about him. And now look, um, history, archaeology is proving the Bible to be true once again. But there's four popular suspicions held by scholars of who this guy is. Some believe that he is Cyrus himself, and this is a title meaning holder of the scepter. I don't really feel that way. I mean, that's just my opinion. I am no scholar, but just the way the language is in the book, it appears to me that there's two different people. Some suspect that he is the son of Cyrus. Others believe that, remember, this is two empires, the Persians and the Medes coming together. King Cyrus has a parent that is part Persian and another parent that is a Mede. And so he's really a mixture of both. And there is this belief by many scholars that Darius was a family member on the Mede side. Now, Persia ends up being really the stronger of the the two in this um, co-ruling uh, family of empires, if you will. And so it is believed that maybe he gave this to a family member because Cyrus was a military genius and perhaps Darius was the administrative genius, which I kind of can see there's some truth to this because we see right off the bat his administrative uh, ways and they seem to be very successful. The last thought is that he is Ugbaru, a governor of G-U-T-I-U-M. I'm not even going to begin to pronounce that. Basically, the general who marched in that night that took over Babylon, the night of the feast. We don't know, but one day, perhaps we will. So this chapter starts off with Darius appointing 120 satraps over the kingdom. These guys were the administrators who would help rule the empire. The empire had expanded 
beyond what King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It has grown since then. They are going to be governors who own land and administer the land. They serve as judge in their territory. They would impose taxes, appoint local officials, police roads, and all public spaces. He then, Darius, then appoints three royal secretaries known as the Eye of the King to rule over these satraps to prevent them from exercising too much power and authority. Daniel is going to rise to power and be one of these three. But it doesn't take long for Darius to recognize the integrity and the administrative genius of Daniel. So he is now about 82 years old and is once again highly favored and promoted to basically the prime minister of this kingdom. He is now going to be over those three eye of the kings, if you will. He's overseeing these royal secretaries. The word of God says that he had an extraordinary spirit. And we have seen all of that to be true up until now. We didn't even need God's word to tell us that. We can see that for ourselves. I mean, I believe that if you look up steadfast in the dictionary, you're going to see a picture of Daniel. He has just blown us away um, with his discernment with his steadfastness, with his favor, and with his ability to stand firm for the word of God with the meekness that brings kings to their knees to bow down and worship their God. So we're going to read, I'm going to read verses four through five. It says, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in the context of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. He was good at his job and he lived his life above board. Um, verse five, finally, these men said, we will never find a basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law and his God. They knew that above all, Daniel was going to serve and worship his God. And so they thought, hmm, let's try to come, come up with something to use that against him. Can you imagine walking with so much integrity that your enemies have to devise a plan to take you out by using your faith in God because they know, number one, that you they won't find any corruption in your life. And number two, that they know that your faithfulness to God is so strong that you will worship him even when the law forbids it. That's amazing. And I think that we should all strive to live the life of Daniel. How did Daniel walk with this much integrity? Was he just naturally born this good man? I don't think so. I think by nature, mankind and when mankind experiences power and success apart from God, we allow our flesh to take over. We see this in all areas of life, even in the Christian world. Just this past week, we see the fall of a great and mighty pastor that has a worldwide church. But Daniel had purposed in his heart from a very young age. He had made that decision to follow God. Here's the mistake many of us make. We use yesterday's experience, faith, obedience, relationship with God for tomorrow's journey. And that just won't sustain us. His mercies are new every morning and we have to grab them up daily. We must abide in him daily, renew our minds daily, walk with him daily. King Darius describes Daniel's walk later as continuously serving God. This is a daily decision. 
We really see a miracle throughout this book, and I'm not even talking about the lion's den yet. This faithfulness of Daniel can only happen when God is first in every area of our lives. And in the moments that he is not first, we have to quickly repent and put him back first. And that's what Daniel did. I don't think that he always 100% of the time lived for God and made the right decision. But I do think when he did fall, he quickly repented and then aligned his life back with Christ or back with God. Christ hasn't come yet. Okay, so verses six through nine, it says that basically a paraphrase that all the leaders had agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except for the king majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. They say, now your majesty, issue a decree and put it into writing so that it can't be altered in accordance to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And so Darius put this decree into writing. Now, I looked into this in the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. That's a mouthful, but it's very helpful. Said that this was a decree to make the king the sole representative of the deity for 30 days. So that it wasn't exactly making him king, but it was making him the high priest. Everyone in the, um, the, the empire would have to go through him to worship the deity that was being worshipped at the time. That means all the prayers to their gods would have to be channeled through him. In this day, there seemed to be a split in religious beliefs. There were advocates for this new philosophy called Zoroastrianism. This was the belief that two uncreated spirits, one good and one evil, ruled the world. Now, this is kind of similar to Christianity. We know that the evil spirit was created, but it seems like that this was a belief that moved a little bit closer to monotheism. And they believed that there was this balance in the world of uncreated spirits. There was an older belief in the land that was called um, synchronistic syncretistic. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but basically this was the religion that the Magi's favored and it was a fusion of many different beliefs. And so the it seems or appears that these satraps are wanting Zoroastrianism to rise. And this would be a great way to get the king on board. It's as if they said, sir, we have all these different beliefs in the kingdom, but what if for 30 days, no one is allowed to pray or practice their religion their way. They have to come through you and you will be the priest for Ahara Mazda, which is the God, the good God of Zoroastrianism. Here we see that the Persian law worked differently than the Babylonian rule. If the king signed something into law, he could not change it. Remember, this is the silver empire. It's not as valuable and expensive as the gold when we looked at the statue. Here in verse 10, we see that Darius, um, I'm sorry, we see that Daniel doesn't submit to this ridiculous new law. He continues to abide daily with God. He prays towards Jerusalem three times a day, and it says on his knees. Now, this wasn't a typical posture of Jewish culture, but this shows his spiritual condition. He is praying more intensely during times of persecution. Well, Daniel's foes were watching and waiting, and they immediately go and tell on him. And King's King Darius's response was very interesting to me. It says that he was disappointed and made every 
effort, or I'm sorry, he was displeased and he made every effort to deliver Daniel. He had been played and he knows it. And we see this amazing affection that he has towards Daniel. But there was nothing that could be done. And in verse 16, the king had to order Daniel to be condemned into the pit. But he says, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. And then the king spent that night fasting. I don't know this to be a fact. It's only my conjecture, conjecture, but I see a man who had heard the testimony of Daniel and his friends, and then he put their faith in all, he put his faith in all their stories and their God when everything seemed to be out of control in his life. Can you imagine someone hearing about your valley and how you would respond and then passing that story down for the next 40 or 50 years and someone else hearing it? And putting into practice what they remember about your story, I am telling you that we will never understand on this side of heaven the supernatural power of our testimony. Another thing to point out is the fondness that um, of Daniel that Darius has. He clearly cares about him, which is a testimony in and of itself to Daniel and his ability to honor and serve pagan le leaders without compromising his own faith. It is truly supernatural. While most of us will never be elevated to second or third in command of world empires, we do have to find this beautiful balance of living out our faith in a godless world and honoring those who have authority over us at the same time. We need discernment that only comes from abiding with God and knowing when we obey the law of the and knowing, I'm sorry, and knowing when to obey the law of the land and when to stand firm on God's law. Oh, the effects of us getting this right will world leaders declaring the works of God, making decisions that carry out kingdom expansion, and some leaders even submitting and following Christ. What we do in captivity matters for the kingdom in more ways than we'll ever know. Well, we all know how the story ends. We would have loved to see God deliver Daniel before he went into the pit absolutely that would have been our prayer and our wish but sometimes god doesn't intervene like we ask him because his plans are so much bigger god once again performs an amazing miracle shuts the mouths of the lions he doesn't daniel doesn't even have a scratch on him and once again everyone in the kingdom knows about the miracles of the hebrew god the king orders all of the men that had accused Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den along with their wives and children. Now this seems pretty drastic to us, but this was common in the ancient world. This ensured that their family line would not continue and their names would be forgotten. We see that Daniel is making enemies by doing things God's way. The word here for accused is actually slander in Aramaic means to eat the pieces of a man. And what the jealous leaders planned and plotted to literally have lions eat the pieces of Daniel backfired on them and the curse fell on them. Um, the falsely accused were thrown into the pit and they were eaten alive. Here's what we can learn from this. You will either face slander or you already have if you are paving a way for others to come into the kingdom of God. And this is what you do. You keep pushing forward. We don't have time to stop and fight this battle. This is a spiritual battle and the Lord will fight for us. We just need to be faithful and focused and steadfast on our calling. He will defend us in his power, in his way, in his timing, every time if we just allow him. 
Now, verse 26 and 27 says, I issue a decree that every part of my kingdom, people must fear and revere the God of Daniel, for he is a living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. I find these words so fascinating because all through Daniel, we are reminded it is God who places man on the throne and it's God's appointed time when that man falls. But God's kingdom will endure forever. It has no end. It cannot be destroyed because he he is the creator of all things. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And guess what happened to dear old Danny boy? Well, he prospers once again. Daniel has faced some big challenges. He was orphaned at his young age, taken into captivity, sent to a foreign land. And on multiple occasions, he's faced death and uncertainty of living in a, um, under a crazy narcissistic king. He has had peers hate him and scheme against him, even when he looked out for their best interests. But he still had prospered. Um, I'm sorry, but he had still prospered and um, and come. I cannot talk today. He still prospers every time because he puts his faith and his hope and his trust and his honor in God every single time. Well, this concludes the narrative portion of this book. This has been fun. It's been familiar. But next week, we will move into the prophetic portion. And I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't a clue of how this is going uh, to go and how I'm going to navigate this. But the goal of Bible Nerds is not to create Bible scholars. It's to give people like you and me, everyday people, tools and direction and encouragement to study for ourselves and allow God to speak to us. So what we're going to do as we enter into these chapters is we'll peel one layer off of the onion. We will trust that God is going to honor that and he is going to use what we learn when, as a foundation um, to one day reveal deeper truths. He'll begin to put pieces of the puzzle together for us. He'll begin to reveal things in his timing. It might be two years that that we go on not really understanding and then one day something is spoken and we read something that puts those pieces together. So we're going to tiptoe into this next section. We're going to take baby steps and we're going to see what God does. I'm excited about it. I actually have started chapter seven. And when you take it slow, it's really not as scary as it seems. So I will see you next week. Happy reading.